0: Good evening, everyone. A little lackadaisical, I have to say. Good evening, everyone. That's what 400-some voices sounds like. That's wonderful. Welcome to a special evening installment of the Banner Lecture Series here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society. I'm delighted to see you out here on a uh, a nice May evening uh, for our third year in a row with our speaker tonight, Gary Gallagher. Before we proceed with tonight's program, uh, let me remind you about our next Banner Lecture, which will take place here at noon on Thursday, May 22nd. Andrew O'Shaughnessy will be here to speak on the men who lost America, British leadership, the American Revolution, and the fate of the empire. Again, that's May 22nd. Um, Should be a wonderful talk. Uh, That lecture will be co-sponsored by the Society of Colonial Wars in the state of Virginia, one of our good partners. Our next behind-the-scenes tour, where you get to see things that are not usually on view to regular visitors to the VHS, will take place at 10.30 in the morning on Saturday, May 31st. Uh, That day, the VHS program coordinator, Chris Van Tassel, will lead a tour entitled Round Robin, Social Networking Before Facebook. (laughs) It actually took place before Facebook, folks. It's true. And finally, our next VHS bus trip will take place next week on Wednesday, May 14th, and there are still a few seats left, but let me say just a few. On that day, we will journey to Nelson County and to the Charlottesville area, where we will experience the beauty of the mountains, the bounty of nature, and most importantly, I think, for many people going on that trip, the art of brewing and of making good barbecue. So... If you're interested in joining us on the bus that day, or in coming to any of these upcoming events, uh, please stop at the museum shop on your way out. And you can find information there, or online on our website, vahistorical.org. Now finally, one little piece of business before I bring up the man who will actually do the introduction. If you have a cell phone, please take it out. Turn it off. Turn it to mute. Smash it under your boot heel. Whatever it takes to keep it quiet during our talk. Thank you. As always, I do need to thank the Richmond Times Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. But as you know, if you've come to uh, these lectures in the past couple of years, we also have co-sponsors for some of our lectures. And I'm delighted to say that tonight's lecture is co-sponsored by the Richmond National Battlefield Park. And uh, they've been our partner the last couple of years. We really value um, our relationship with them. I value uh, the guy I'm going to bring up to, sta- to the stage now. This is um, Dave Ruth, the superintendent of the park, and he will introduce our speaker, but more importantly, he's also sometimes my doubles tennis partner. So, uh, Dave, you, I will uh, leave the uh, podium to you. Come on up.
1: It's great to be here. I can't believe a year has gone by since... Uh, since we gathered here in, in, in this very room. And, uh, Paul, thank you. The Virginia Historical Society is an incredible partner for us. We, we really cherish the time to be, be having this together in, in this space. But I've I got to say a big thank you to you all, because I'll tell you, we have heard that the Civil War Susquecentennial was going to fizzle after Gettysburg, that people just weren't going to turn out. And so you are proof positive that, in fact, that was a bad rumor. And, in fact, what happens? after Gettysburg, what happens here in 1864 and on the road to Appomattox is really important. Um, And I have the good news to report, and I see some folks in the front row that have this uh, wonderful guide for the upcoming programs that we're going to do here in the park, and my job up here, I was told, is two things, to introduce of course our speaker, but also to introduce some of the programming that we're going to be doing in the upcoming uh, weeks. And I did a little tally uh, this afternoon and found that we have 10 solid days of campaigning with programs and 45 separate programs within that time. And you'll see those listed in in your uh, booklet. And it's a great mix of bus tours, which I must say are selling out pretty rapidly. So if you're interested in some of those, that will be done by Bobby Crick. And we're bringing back Mike Andrus, one of the great military historian interpreters who uh, unfortunately retired, but is coming back to do those. So uh, I think you'll really enjoy those tours. Also, uh, we are going to do some real-time interpretive programming, and it, it, it really, real-time is, is to be highlighted. We are going to follow in the footsteps of the soldiers at 5.30 a.m. on the morning of June 3rd on some of the property that is still in private hands and some of the most uh, significant, bloodiest, important land in this whole United States that lies unpreserved. But the families have given us permission to do this. So the first ones are jumping off at 5.30 at Cold Harbor, but the, my uh, chief of interpretation, Beth Stern, who's here somewhere, had the good sense of saying that we have some folks that probably need to get starbucked, if that's a verb, and... and. Uh, <laughs> And, and uh, ready to go out there. So let's do a second uh, jump off at, I think it's 10 or later that morning. So if you don't want to walk at 5.30 a.m. as the soldiers did uh, on June third, eighteen 1864, sleep in and come out a little bit later uh, and do them at, at 10. But I, I think you will uh, really in, in enjoy that, particularly one of the tracks north of where the park is, the Kaufman Farm. Many of you may have been to the Adams farm, um, which Bobby and others have given tours at previously, but very few people have ventured onto the Kaufman farm. So this will be really an opportunity um, for the first time for many folks. I, I also am happy to report that we're trying something different, too. In addition to talking about Richmond and the battlefields, we're sending rangers from all three of our parks, Fredericksburg, Richmond, and Petersburg, who I must say joined together for the first time in really doing commemorative program planning. We, uh, we oftentimes played softball together, but we never, never planned things. So for the first time we got together and we developed a program we call Reverberations. And we're trying to bring in the entire nation to understand the impacts that occurred not just on the battlefield, but on the home front at places like the wilderness in Spotsylvania and Cold Harbor and Petersburg. So to do that, we're sending rangers from our parks to Dearborn, Massachusetts, Natchez, Mississippi. I've got a few listed here so I don't uh, miss any. Charleston, South Carolina, Litchfield, Bangor, Maine, Wilmington, North Carolina, and the Stockbridge-Munsee Indian Reservation in Wisconsin. On May 24th, We'll have rangers in all of those places. We're going to do illuminations in the cemeteries in those hometowns, plus illuminations out at Cold Harbor for the first time and Poplar Grove Cemetery and the Fredericksburg National Cemetery and simulcast it with some magical um, social media that I I am uh, not even capable of describing because my staff is so keen with that stuff. But we'll be simulcasting that stuff and so we'll be blowing taps simultaneously and doing interpretive programs all around the nation in these communities that suffered so much during these battlefields. And in the case of Litchfield, lost tremendous amount of casualties. Uh, so please uh, look over the, um, the, the, uh, the booklet and give us a call if you have any questions, but come out and, and uh, please enjoy those programs. On June 3rd, Bud Robertson will be with us at Cold Harbor for an anniversary commemorative program, and he'll be joined with uh, by Paul Levingood as well here at the Virginia Historical Society. So we're really excited about that to, to end it all. But we're here at the beginning. And uh, now for tonight's program, I just want to make a few comments um, about our speaker. I, I I was trying to think, what can I change up from the introduction? Because I've done this three years in a row now, and I see so many familiar faces. but. I, I got to say that none of us would deny that some of the success, if not much of it, uh, the previous two years can be traced to having Professor Gallagher on hand as an appropriate launch for the Richmond area's 2012 and 2013 susquicentennial se- season. He's been the foundation for much of what we're doing, and he's been the foundation for a lot that we do in the world of history. Every one of us in the Naxal Park Service bow our heads to Gary because there's not many academians who still work in the world of military history and Civil War history and Gary does that. He's a mentor to every one of us and we're really glad that he's here and he's willing to um, be part of this incredible program. And I got a list of books here which um, I could tell you his accomplishments in the publishing world, but you all know you could outfit an entire bookshelf with nothing but uh, but Gary Gallagher titles in addition to the many pieces of, of um, uh, publications that he's, edi- that he's editing. Uh, along the way. So the titles are innumerable. Um, So I I won't go into that. I'll mention real quickly that tonight Dr. Gallagher will look at the situation in both armies in that critical spring 150 years ago when Ulysses Grant and Robert E. Lee carried the weight of their respective nations into the dramatic overland campaign. Please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Gallagher to the podium. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dave. That's great. Thank you, Dave. I am, we're on a tight leash tonight, and we have about 50 minutes, and so I hope to talk for 35 minutes or so and then have time for give and take with all of you, which is what we've done in the past. I've been told not to walk in front of the podium and not to go too far that way, so I'm more, te- more tethered behind this which I find very distressing, but anyway, I'm going to be here for a while and see how long that lasts. We're right at the very first part of the Overland Campaign, as you know. Uh, We're 150 years away from May the 7th, interestingly enough. I know that partly because my father turned 94 today. Uh, Yes, the little murmur goes through the crowd. 150 years ago, U.S. Grant was moving south on the Brock Road. And when the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac figured that out, a number of them cheered him, as you know. It's one of the great moments, one of the great dramatic moments of the war, is when those veterans in the Army of the Potomac figured out that the person in charge then was not Joseph Hooker and was not George Brinton McClellan, but was someone who was going to push the issue despite a two day battle that had just ended that cost 30,000 casualties between the two armies it is it is as i said one of the great moments of the war on the brock road and sets up uh, what comes afterward at spotsylvania and then on down to cold harbor but what i'm going to do tonight happens before that i was asked to Talk about expectations going into the Overland Campaign. What are the national expectations in both the United States and the Confederacy in February and March and April of 1864 as the two most important and most famous armies of the respective nations get ready to engage one another in another season of campaigning in the spring? of 1864. I'm going to begin with the eminently quotable Josiah Gorgas, the northerner who was the sort of wizard of ordnance in the Confederacy and who's one of the key people who made sure that Confederate soldiers had the things they needed to have in order to fight. I'm going to begin with his diary. uh, His diary entry of July 28, 1863. Events have succeeded one another with disastrous rapidity, he wrote. One brief month ago we were apparently at the point of success. Lee was in Pennsylvania, threatening Harrisburg and even Philadelphia. Vicksburg seemed to laugh all Grant's efforts to scorn, and the Northern Papers had reports of his raising the siege. Just 30 days later, we all know Lee had retreated from Pennsylvania, Vicksburg had fallen, and a huge amount of material lost, and thousands of men taken prisoner, And Gorgas continued, yesterday we rode on the pinnacle of success. Today, absolute ruin seems to be our portion. The Confederacy totters to its destruction. Uh, That's one of the most famous passages from any diary from the Civil War, first published in 1947 in an edition from the University of Alabama Press. I want to use that as my point of departure to raise the question, who was winning the war as the spring campaigning season approached in 1864. Gorgas seems to answer that. And he's been cited endlessly to prove that really the war was over in the summer of 1863. There's really no chance for Confederate success after Vicksburg, after Gettysburg, and especially if you throw Chattanooga into the mix later in 1863. How could the Confederacy recover from that series of hammer blows that came in the second half of 1863. There's a very strong sense in much of the literature that as Lee's army took to the roads away from Gettysburg on July 4th, those roads are roads that are eventually going to lead directly to Appomattox. How could anyone think the Confederacy was capable of achieving independence after what had happened in 1863? Uh, We've all been in this room before and some of you in other rooms Uh, where we've talked about the Civil War. I'll mention this. You've heard me mention it before. That notion that you're leading directly to Appomattox after the summer of 1863 is part of what I call the Appomattox syndrome, starting at the end of the story and working backward to try to understand how and why you got there. Don't ever do that. I've said that before. I have a sneaking suspicion some of you are still doing that. (laughs) You need to stop right now. Don't do it. Uh, Because it doesn't lead you toward understanding. You need to read forward in the evidence. If the war was really decided in the summer of 1863, what are we doing here on May the 7th, 2014? If we already know what's going on, what's the point in talking about anything after? It can be like the movie Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, (laughs) which literally ends with the Battle of Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg happens. The war is over uh, in that movie. I don't think most... People who went to that movie noticed anything wrong with that. (laughs) Probably thought that was on one of the tests they took sometime. Just weren't sure Lincoln was really a vampire hunter, but they knew the war ended at Gettysburg. I have two themes tonight. One you've already discerned, I think. Either side could have won the war as the spring of 1864 rolled around. Either side can win. The whole lost cause notion of a hopeless war... Against impossible odds is another thing you need to get out of your mind, should it be tucked away there anywhere. Uh, either side could win, and the Confederacy's going to come the closest it came during the war in the wake of the Overland Campaign, in the summer, in the blood-soaked summer of 1864. It had a much lower bar to cross. We've talked about this before, too. All the Confederates have to do is persuade a majority, of the civilian population in the United States, it isn't worth it. To try to force those states to come back. The United States has a much tougher bar to cross. It has to project its military power in the end almost everywhere in the Confederacy, not into much of Texas, not into all of Florida, but most of the rest of it. So either side can win. The other theme tonight, the main one, is that morale was surprisingly high on both sides. Not so surprising that it's high on the United States side, as we will see, and I'll spend less time on the U.S. than on the Confederacy. Very high on the United States side, surprisingly high on the Confederate side, because we know the war was going to be over in just a little bit more than a year. So how could Confederates really have expected that they might have a chance to win independence? And yet they did, as the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia prepared to square off once again along that much-disputed Rappahannock-Rapidan River frontier in early May, 1864. Uh, Almost everybody realized that Virginia was the most important theater. That upsets a lot of people. Oh, the West never gets enough attention. The West gets plenty of attention for a place that wasn't that important. (laughs) (laughs) The action is going to be decided here. And let me pick a witness at random to make that point. U.S. Grant. (laughs) These are not my favorite microphones. There may be little problems with it, but I'm going to plow ahead. This is from Grant's memoirs. He talks about the five simultaneous advances of the spring of 1864. He says, Lee, with the capital of the Confederacy, was the main end to which all were working. What about his friend Sherman in Atlanta? The capture of Johnston and his army would not produce so immediate and decisive a result (coughs) in closing the rebellion as with the possession of Richmond, Lee and his army. The East is more important because people at the time thought it was more important. That's something else for us to keep in mind as the Overland Campaign gets going. Now, a lot of scholars don't agree with my interpretation of Confederate morale that I'm going to offer uh, right now. They think it's impossible to reconcile the strikingly divergent Confederate and Union reactions to the same series of events in 1863 and early 1864. How could both sides be optimistic when they're in the midst of the same war? It's one of the wonderful things about getting down into the incredible complexity of history. Uh, You can find out if you read forward in things that it's entirely possible for people to have very different ideas about the same events that they're watching play out in their newspapers and in letters and so forth. That's what's going on here. We all know the Confederacy would be dead less than a year after the Overland Campaign, so how could Confederates in March and April of 1864 have any hope for victory, wonder many scholars. Uh, Were white Southerners engaged in some kind of mass self-delusion, or did they just proclaim false optimism, knowing that really Appomattox was looming just ahead? But let's pretend uh, to be optimistic It's it's of course true that some newspapers, especially pro-administration newspapers, pro-Davis administration newspapers, uh, tailored their editorials and coverage of events to boost morale. It's also true that some soldiers and others uh, put the best face possible on what was going on when they wrote home to try to buck up morale at home, and the reverse was true sometimes too, people at home trying to buck up the soldiers. Uh, But I believe it's a mistake not to accept roughly at face value ideas and opinions expressed in the letters and diaries of the time. Uh, the notions that participants often fail to record their true opinions and that we, at a distance of 150 years, can detect what they really thought, uh, that strikes me as very problematical. Uh, I'm not even sure why I do some of the things I do, and I am around myself all the time. <laughs> the notion that we can figure out What they're really thinking when they write one thing, but we know they didn't mean that, they really meant this, I'd be very wary of going too far down that road. I think that we need to pretty much take them at face value, especially if there seems to be a preponderant notion at play in many diaries, many letters, newspapers, and other kinds of evidence. I think that the people in the United States and the Confederacy simply perceived some events differently in 1863 and 1864 and acted accordingly. Let me talk about expectations in the United States first, and I'm going to keep this pretty short because the expectations, the, the punchline is they're extremely high. They're coming off those great victories in 1863, and they have Ulysses S. Grant now in charge the second week of March as General-in-Chief of all United States Armies. This was a huge step forward for the United States. Grant is the preeminent military hero in the United States by early 1864, an unbroken string of victories in the West from Henry and Donaldson to Shiloh to Vicksburg to Chattanooga. And both the Democratic and Republican press lauded the decision to reinstitute the rank of three-star general that only George Washington had ever held and give it to U.S. Grant. That's an incredible gesture on the part of the United States to give Washington's rank to someone else. Winfield Scott had had it by brevet. No one else had ever had it, and we don't have any understanding anymore of what an absolutely towering figure Washington was, both in the United States and in the Confederacy, to put Grant alongside Washington in that way, tells us a great deal about expectations for U.S. Grant. They were absolutely sky high when he was made General-in-Chief. I'm going to read just two uh, newspaper accounts, one from a Democratic paper, the New York Herald, edited by James Gordon Bennett. It's a very widely read Democratic paper. The most widely read U.S. paper in Europe uh, was Bennett's New York Herald. Grant is the perfect commander... He has above every man of this generation the confidence of the American people. He has the soul to inspire an army and the brains to direct it. On the Republican side, from Horace Greeley's New York Tribune, we believe no military order has been issued in this war so universally satisfactory as that which we print this morning, appointing Lieutenant General Grant to command all the armies of the United States." Tremendously high expectations for Grant. And he's brought east because the people of the United States want someone to smash Robert E. Lee. That's why he's in the east. He could have stayed in the west and run the war. He's in the east because it's so important to defeat Lee. Another measure of how important the east is. Uh, The fact that both Abraham Lincoln in December and Congress in the spring put forward plans for reconstruction also suggests that there's a real sense of imminent victory. In the United States, they're looking toward the aftermath. What are we going to do after we win? Uh, There's some possible trouble on the horizon. Thousands of U.S. soldiers uh, had three-year enlistments that would run out at the end of the spring campaigning. 20,000 of them are in the Army of the Potomac. So if the United States doesn't win in the spring, they're going to lose a lot of veterans. The Democrats are, of course, still very unhappy with the Lincoln administration, unhappy with conscription, unhappy with emancipation. very unhappy with what they saw as grotesque violations of civil liberties on Lincoln's part. But all of their unhappiness would mean nothing if really good news came in from the battlefields. That is the key, and the expectation was that good news was going to come in. So the people in the U.S., both in uniform and behind the lines, are expecting their armies to deliver victory in the next round of campaigning, that is, in the spring and early summer, of 1864. Expectations in the Confederacy, they require a little bit more detailed examination because they seem to go against the grain, as I've already suggested. Why why don't they know they're not going to win? Why don't they get it? We get it. We know what's going to happen. We know they've only got a little more than a year left in their effort to establish this new slave-holding republic. It's going to be over with. By May... Of 1865. Uh, the theme of this part of the talk is that there's guarded optimism across almost all of the Confederacy. That's one of the themes. And the second one is that R.E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia are absolutely central to that optimism. They are essentially the only factor that really promotes that. They have long since become the most important national institution in the Confederacy. Lee has long since become the most important person in the Confederacy in that regard. And people are looking to them, not just people here in Virginia. People all across the Confederacy look to them for good news because they don't get it anywhere else. As we know, they certainly don't get it anywhere where U.S. Grant has been. It is nothing but a story of absolute failure from a Confederate perspective wherever Grant has been. Are there no problems in the Confederacy? Of course there are problems in the Confederacy. There are shortages. A lot of Confederate territory had been lost by this time. The Confederates aren't happy with conscription either. They're not happy with impressment. They're not happy with huge casualties, especially North Carolinians. The butcher bill for North Carolina at Gettysburg was terrible. Far worse than for any other Confederate state. And a lot of the anti-war sentiment in North Carolina that was expressed through the rest of 1863 and into 1864, is related to the fact that the North Carolinians took such a savage beating at Gettysburg in terms of relative losses among Confederates. Inflation was terrible. There's a good deal of war weariness in the Confederacy. All those things are true. All of them are true. And those are the kinds of things that most scholars have emphasized in portraying the Confederacy as really falling apart by this time in the war Running on fumes, so to speak, and certainly headed for defeat. Internal fissures, internal unhappiness of such scale that there's no real chance that the Confederacy is going to succeed. All those things are happening. They are not the most important story uh, from my point of view, as I'll show, uh, as I'll suggest in a minute. And of course, Lee and his army had been through a very hard winter in 1863 64 extremely reduced rations, animals nearly starving. Lee had to, to send both his artillery horses and his cavalry horses a long way out so that they could be taken care of during the winter, a very rough winter. And one of the corps in the army isn't even with the Army of Northern Virginia that winter. As you know, James Longstreet and his corps, the two-thirds of it that were still intact after Gettysburg, Lafayette, McClaws, and John Hood's divisions, they had been sent west, and they were still out west having had a little dose of Braxton Bragg and then a little dose of James Longstreet in command, which should absolutely take care of any notion, even the sliver of a notion that any of you might have, that James Longstreet should have been an army commander. Uh, Just read about the Knoxville campaign and you'll get over that in a hurry. Uh, You will no longer think James Longstreet should have been an army commander. But they're not with the army either. It's It's a rough winter, a very rough winter. The factors that brought the optimism that I think was present, guarded, but certainly present in the Confederacy, were, first of all, an unshakable trust in Lee. Gettysburg had no effect on R.E. Lee's reputation, either in the Confederacy or the United States. It's an amazing, an amazing phenomenon. No effect. Diary after diary after diary in 1864, early 1864 on the Confederate side, General Lee's a commander who's never been defeated and never will be. This is after Gettysburg. Another reason why we should rethink the notion that Gettysburg was so important, and I'll leave that alone now. I won't beat the carcass of that dead horse uh, any longer here. There was very little fear that Grant was going to make a difference in the East because the very strong notion was, yeah, Grant defeated John Pemberton at Vicksburg. Now he's up against the first string, and the outcome will be different. There was a hope that a decisive triumph on the battlefield might undercut northern civilian morale and bring Confederate independence within the year. And already in the spring, Confederates were looking toward the elections in the United States in November. Abraham Lincoln was going to run for re-election. There was a sense that if the Confederates could avoid defeats, never mind win big victories, avoid big defeats, Democrats could take the election of 1864, and if Democrats took the election of 1864, believed Confederates, some kind of negotiated peace could well be possible, even with slavery intact. So the next question is, should their morale have been as high as it was? And these are some of the reasons, I think, why it makes sense that it was. And I'll start again by arguing for reading evidence from the time going forward. And what you find are things that we don't pay much attention to now, in retrospect. uh, Edward A. Pollard, a newspaperman here in Richmond, who wrote really important books as the war unfolded about the the Confederate experience during the war, he wrote four of them. The last one came out right after the war, published in New York. Uh, his Southern History of the War is well worth your attention. He's biased, he's over the top, he's all the things people say he is. But these books, these four books, which he then re scrambled and republished under lots of different titles uh, after the war The Lost Cause, Lee and his Lieutenants, there are a bunch of them. They are a great treasure trove of information on the Confederacy, written in the midst of events. He sketched a largely positive temper across the Confederacy, and he talked about things we don't talk about much anymore including a series of victories early in 1864 that buoyed Confederate morale. Uh, On February 20th, Joseph Finnegan turned back a small Union army at Lusty in Florida, the biggest battle uh, in Florida. Nathan Bedford Forrest won a small victory at Oklahoma, Mississippi uh, on the 22nd of February and then uh, captured the Union Fort Pillow and then slaughtered much of the white Unionist and... African-American garrison there on April 12th. In the east, Judson Kilpatrick mounted his raid against Richmond, as all of you know, Uh, came out uh, right past the country club of Virginia, uh, made its way closer to downtown. country club wasn't there, of course, uh, but maybe was in someone's brain for a long-term project. Uh, He didn't threaten Richmond, but the papers that were found on Ulrich Dahlgren's body after that was turned back and suggested that the Federals were thinking of maybe assassinating Jefferson Davis, became a cause célèbre in the Confederacy and buoyed Confederate uh, morale in some ways. West of the Mississippi, Nathaniel Prentice Banks, who showed he could lose campaigns all across the strategic <laughs> map, uh, retreated during the Red River campaign after the two little battles on April 8th and 9th uh, in northwest Louisiana at Pleasant Hill and Mansfield. And down in North Carolina, Robert Hoke, who would end up fighting uh, up here at the end of the war, Robert Hoke captured Plymouth on April 20th. All of these things, February, March, April, good news, good news, good news that we don't pay attention to now that they did pay attention to. Then Pollard wrote that, quote, In Richmond and elsewhere, the hope was freely indulged, that the campaign of 1864 was to be the decisive of the war and to crown the efforts of the South with peace, and independence That's a little over the top. But his basic point, I think, is right. Confederates are debating all kinds of things in the Confederacy. They're debating shortages and debating the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, debating conscription. All these are going on. But if we could ask them one fundamental question, would you rather live in a Confederacy with a government that's doing those things Or back in the United States under Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans, the response overwhelmingly would be, of course we'd rather be in a Confederacy that's doing those things. We don't like them, but they're probably necessary to keep our war effort going. That's the real question. Uh, did, Did people get upset with their government? Of course they did. And complain about Davis? Of course they did. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go from that to saying they didn't care whether the Confederacy won or not. I'm going to stick my neck out and say there's some people in this audience who are unhappy with some things that the government does sometimes. (laughs) Doesn't mean you want the United States to fail. It just means you're unhappy with some things that the government does sometimes. And I think that was true in the Confederacy as well. Confederate newspapers spoke of federal plans to make slaves of Confederates. If we lose this war... The Yankees will enslave us is the message. They'll rob us of all we have on earth, wrote the Richmond Dispatch, and reduce our whole population to the condition of beggars and slaves. The question no longer is whether African slavery will survive, but whether you and your children shall be slaves. That kind of language in a slaveholding society has tremendous resonance. And the fear of what a Lincoln-led government would do was profound. That's why the Emancipation Proclamation bolstered Confederate sentiment. Didn't weaken it when people found out about it. The entire social structure is on the table. And that's a very effective way to persuade people that even greater sacrifices are in order. You better sacrifice more because if the Yankees win, this is what's going to happen. The newspapers played that up a great deal in early 1864. And as Confederates looked around and tried to gauge their chances, uh, their gaze fell on Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, as it often did. there is the institution that's going to keep us from being ground under the boot of the Lincoln administration. And within that Army of Northern Virginia... I think morale was higher than anywhere else in the Confederacy. I think morale within the Army in Northern Virginia was higher than the civilian morale in general and certainly higher than morale in other Confederate armies. And that does make sense. It's the only army that wins anything. And it's the only army that has a man at the head of it who's actually up to commanding an army. There's one person in the Confederacy who demonstrated that he could really command an army, and that's R.E. Lee. That's a problem for the Confederacy because they have more than one army. Uh, But it's not a problem for the men in the Army in Northern Virginia because they're in Lee's Army, and that gives them tremendous trust. Uh, They saw their role in the coming campaign as especially important. A lieutenant in the 51st Georgia put it succinctly less than two weeks before the Federals crossed the Rapidan in early May He said, my opinion is that before another month rolls off, a great battle will be be fought in this part of Virginia, and I am confident of success. Doesn't mean there's there's no problem in the Army. The, The shortage of food was a huge problem. Lee wrote Jefferson Davis just before the campaign. He wrote to him the second week of April. <clears throat> and said that he suffered anxiety on the subject of provisions so great that I cannot refrain from expressing it to your excellency. I cannot see how we can operate with our present supplies. The rations in the Army in Northern Virginia got down to an eighth to a quarter pound of uncooked bacon and one and a half pounds of roughly one and, a half, one and a half pounds of cornmeal for much of that winter, which, of course, is not enough to sustain people very well. It was a very hard winter. Desertions went up a little bit. They didn't become critical, but they went up a little bit. Lee said he thought the desertions, he wrote to Jefferson Davis, or to the Secretary of War, and said, this is happening because our men aren't getting enough to eat. They're literally not getting enough to eat. So desertion is... Something of a problem, not a huge one. Uh, Many of the men, there are executions in the army for desertion. And it's an interesting phenomenon. The soldiers both understood why some men deserted, but for the most part also supported the executions as necessary in a military force. I'll I'll quote a non-commissioned officer in the 44th North Carolina who reported on the execution of a man in his regiment and another from another North Carolina regiment. They were shot for desertion. Running away from the army is not fine work. We're soldiers, and we have to stay as long as there's any war. Uh, most of the men in the army were determined to push through to the end of the war. Now, of course, they also didn't have a choice because the Confederate arm, uh, Confederate government never let them out of uniform. once they got them into uniform, they would change the law again in early 1864 to keep them in uniform for the duration. It's different in the United States Army. The U.S. government observed whatever the, the length of an enlistment was and let you go home. Uh, not in the Confederate Army, but even before Congress changed that rule in early 1864, a lot of the soldiers re-upped for the duration, and newspapers made a huge deal out of that, that these men, I think a lot of them knew that coercion was coming down the road, but they but they nonetheless re-upped, and that made a real impression on people behind the lines. I'll quote one South Carolina woman, Emma Holmes, great diarist. She expressed delight that, quote, the whole army is animated with the brightest and most determined spirit and almost everywhere the soldiers are re-enlisting unanimously by companies, regiments, or brigades for the war. She underscored the war. And one person added even if it lasts 40 years. And some of the men of course, said they couldn't tell how long it was going to last but a long time. There was real unhappiness in the Army with whatever sense of anti-war sentiment they detected behind the lines. This was especially true of North Carolina and Georgia troops who were upset with Governor Joseph Brown of Georgia, many of whose statements they thought bordered on being uh, anti-war, Vice President Alexander H. Stevens, who'd been at war with Jefferson Davis for a long time, And W.W. Holden, uh, who hoped to be governor of North Carolina and was very strongly anti-war. Stevens and Holden and Brown came in for a huge amount of criticism from soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia. Antipathy to Stevens was especially high. Uh, One artillerist wrote, I would like to see that scoundrel Alexander Stevens, our dishonored vice president, tarred and feathered and then hung. (coughs) Sort of harsh. The key to the Army's morale, of course, was this bond with Lee, this this bond with Lee that was also present with people behind the lines. People in the United States were happy to have Grant get Washington's rank. There's a tie to Washington there. People in the Confederacy constantly compared Lee to Washington, constantly compared him to Washington. Both civilians. And soldiers, I'll quote one soldier. This is Brigadier General Clement A. Evans, whose letters are spectacular. If you want a great set of letters from the Army of Northern Virginia, look at Clement Evans's. Uh, He wrote this, General Lee is regarded by his army as nearest approaching the character of the great and good Washington than any man living. He's the only man living in whom they would unreservedly trust all power for the preservation of their independence. Stonewall Jackson inspired enthusiasm said Evans, but quote, love and reverence for Lee is a far deeper and more general feeling. Uh, it's just you cannot, some historians in the 1970s and 80s and 90s pretended that this, this towering Lee is a sort of post-war creation that Jubal Early and a little coterie of lost cause people got together and said, let's make Lee a hero. Just read what was written during the war and you get that. It's a great example of how if you want to argue that, don't read anything. Uh, because the evidence really gets in the way of arguing that if you actually read anything from during the war. Uh, One incident really captured this bond between Lee and his army, and it took place at Mechanicsville, not your Mechanicsville here in Richmond, but the little Mechanicsville uh, out in between Culpeper and Charlottesville, where in late April, James Longstreet's two divisions came back from East Tennessee, and there was a review by R.E. Lee and James Longstreet of the First Corps, there were only about ten thousand men in these two divisions. It shows how depleted they uh, they were by that point. Uh, Longstreet's divisions back from their several months in Georgia and Tennessee. Uh, their arrival set the stage for what Artillerist Edward Porter Alexander later likened to quote a military sacrament uh, that the men pledged when Lee was back. It was a very clear and pleasant day. Uh, Lee rode. uh, The the troops were arrayed along a hillside, 10,000 of them. Lee rode out uh, on Traveler across a broad field. Music and an artillery salute heralded his appearance, and when the soldiers caught sight of him on his well-known gray horse for the first time since the preceding summer, Uh, One soldier described their reaction in a letter at the time as, quote, a wild and prolonged cheer, fraught with a feeling that thrilled all hearts. It ran along the lines and rose to the heavens. He said that men tossed their hats skyward, color bearers shook their standards, and a palpable emotion surged through the assemblage. Lee moved forward to acknowledge all of this, uh, triggering, according to one witness, Quote, on all sides, expressions such as, what a splendid figure, what a noble face and head. Our destiny is in his hands. He's the best and greatest man on the continent. Within the Army, they were delighted to have him back. It was like the family was put back together. Walter Taylor of Lee's staff, who had longed for the presence of the First Corps for many weeks, recorded with unabashed delight, quote, that a portion of our family, he underlined that, has returned to us. Old Pete Longstreet is with us, and all seems propitious. The army back together. Uh, they mocked Grant, many of them, with this idea that, yes, Grant did fine out west. He's not going to do fine against the first string. And, of course, Grant had the same attitude. Yes, he got sick of hearing about what Lee was going to do to him. Grant's idea was, what, what, what are we going to do to Lee? <laughs> Lee and Grant are fascinating this way. Neither of them ever conceded the other's greatness. Uh, They were generous to lots of people, not to each other. Grant pretended he was more worried when Joseph Johnston was in front of him. Just think about that. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Think about that. (laughs) Very funny. Uh, Very funny. Uh, They believed that they would be successful. They did believe that they had been tested. There's a huge revival in the Army in the winter of 1863, 1864, Uh, Many historians have have argued that when people thought God wasn't giving them everything they wanted, they just gave up. They didn't give up. They decided they hadn't been trying hard enough. There's a new trial put before them, a new test put before them. They need to try harder. That That is what comes out of that winter. I'll quote one soldier here. He said, though in the past three years he, God, has suffered us to be sorely tormented, and aliens to occupy our lands and strangers our houses, he never brought us so far in the struggle as to turn us over to the tender mercies of the enemy. Uh, they will go for And Lee had language that echoed that as well. Lee knew that even with Longstreet's two divisions, the army in northern Virginia would muster only about 65,000 men. He knew the United States would bring about 100,000 or more into the field against him. You have an army with an absolute bond between the commander and the general. I think every bit as strong a bond as was there during the Gettysburg campaign, but the army's not quite as big. It's about 10,000 men smaller than it had been at Gettysburg, but still this, this really quite remarkable, quite remarkable belief that things would work out From Lee's point of view, as long as the men were in place, from the men's point of view, as long as Lee was in place. There's no comparable bond on either side uh, during the war. Lee hated the fact he'd probably be on the defensive because his army was smaller. He was never comfortable with that, as you know. In fact, he would instigate the action in the wilderness on on May the 5th. He wanted to direct rather than respond uh, to action But he knew that his men, and he wrote about this, had delivered victories on many fields. And as he said, at Gettysburg, I mean, he had this trust in them. At Gettysburg, he said he'd asked too much of them. He wrote that to his wife and wrote that to Jefferson Davis. Uh, But he still has a belief, I think, that he can ask a very great deal of them in this campaign and still have it turn out. As his soldiers strode toward battle on May 5th along the turnpike in the wilderness, I think they retained an unshakable faith in their commander and a very high expectation of success. I think most Confederate civilians in late April and early May 1864 joined Lee's men in projecting a victory in Virginia. The same was true with people in the United States as they contemplated grants finally coming to finally their great general is going to confront the great rebel general. They're both in the same place. It's three years into the war and finally here they're going to be coming together. The people in the United States expected victory as well. Predicted it. Predicted that this would be the last great campaign. And I think that those expectations on both sides underscore the importance of military events that commenced here in the Eastern Theater in May of 1864. Whichever army emerged from this epic confrontation with the advantage believed most citizens in both nations, whoever emerged from that uh, with the advantage, would have a decisive influence on the outcome of the war. As we try to fathom attitudes in the spring of 1864, uh, which is partly what we're doing here today, we should do so without any idea of Gettysburg or Appomattox in mind, just... Airbrush those out of your thinking and try to situate yourself in the spring of 1864. Uh, Knowing only what the soldiers and their commanders knew, I think when we do that, we get a very different picture of the state of the war as the fourth year began. And it's a fourth year when anything is possible and it's a fourth year that just a few months down the road is going to put Abraham Lincoln in a position where he's convinced the Republicans will not win re-election, and they'll have to win the war before the Democrats take over, and where people in the Confederacy could see, hang on a little bit longer, and this war is going to go our way. That's a year after Gettysburg. It's long past the point most people think very much was possible in terms of Confederate success. But when you look at the evidence from this period we're looking at, I think that's the conclusion that you would draw. Thank you. There are two microphones. There's going to be a microphone in each of these. And Ham has his hand up there already. There's a, there's a question back there.
3: You spoke of the uh, trust and reverence that the Army of Northern Virginia had for Lee. How was Grant perceived in the Army of the Potomac, particularly by the time they got to Petersburg?
2: Well, that's a great question. How he was perceived early on is he's perceived as an outsider. A gigantic advantage the Confederates had in the Overland Campaign is that Lee knew his army intimately. Grant didn't know his army at all. The Army of the Potomac. He literally didn't know some of the leading officers in the Army. He didn't know who they were. Saw them, didn't know who they were. That's a huge advantage to the Confederacy. What did the men in the ranks think about Grant as the campaign unfolded? Contrary to what you read some places where it seems he's known as a butcher in the Army by the end of the campaign, that's a very unusual opinion of him by then. For the most part, they see him as a resilient and determined officer. Who gives them a better chance to win than anybody who had commanded the army before? Do they love him the way they love McClellan? No. Do they respect him as a first-rate general? Yes. Do they know they've been through a bloody campaign? Of course they do. Uh, We've talked about this in here before. The the men in Lee's army, of course, suffered a higher percentage of casualties than Grant's did. Lee's relatively the bloodier general here. But uh, Grant... Grant still had a, he, he's, he's still not really known in that army. He's only been with him by the end of the Overland campaign six weeks in the field. Lee's been with his army since June 1, 1862. So a huge advantage to Lee there.
3: Okay. Okay. You're saying that all Lee has to do is hold Grant. Until Lincoln doesn't get reelected. And he does. However, you said the West wasn't important. But Lincoln got reelected. I see right where
2: you're going. Shall I go ahead and pick it up from here?
3: Lincoln got reelected because his friend took Atlanta,
2: Grant's friend. Yes. That's right. Grant's friends. That's right. If it had just been up to Grant to re-elect just Grant and Grant's part of his overall offensives, Lincoln would not have been re-elected because Lee held Grant off here. What Lee couldn't hold off, of course, were two other parts of Grant's overall strategy, Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley and William Tecumseh Sherman at Atlanta. So i am not Atlanta's really important. Shenandoah Valley's Really important in 1864. Those two parts of Grant's overall stra- Grant is still the key. Still his overall strategy that wins. But you're absolutely right. Grant himself, with his soldiers facing Lee's soldiers, they're stuck outside Petersburg uh, past the election of 1864. So Grant, all by himself, with that army, would not have reelected Lincoln. Grant's overall plan, with his friend Sherman and his protege Sheridan executing two parts of it, do Make that great political change in October, in from September 1st to October 19th.
3: I know that um, if you look at how the war changed between 1862, 63 into 64, 65, many more entrenchments, more so a defensive nature on both sides, which you know brings up the point Grant made: terrible attacks at Vicksburg and at the bloody angle, then he did it again at Cold Harbor, then it ended up in Petersburg. At that time, 64, when you started to see more trenches, I realized West Point was an engineering school up till the eve of the Civil War. Did the soldiers know when they stopped to start digging in? I mean, did they understand how trench lines (coughs) ran at that time? Or were the Corps of Engineers on both sides large enough to show how the trenches should be dug? Did the common soldier do this on his own? Or well,
2: the common soldiers did, a, the di- you mean in the field? Common soldiers did a lot of the digging. Did they understand how important trenches were? Of course they did. They understood it's better to be behind them to, than to be attacking them. Uh, except the, the really slow ones maybe didn't figure that out. But, but no, they figured that out, and that's why you have some of the United States soldiers by the time of the attacks at Petersburg between June 15th and, and 18th refusing to advance against Confederate entrenchments. Yes, Grant ordered uh, assaults he shouldn't have ordered, just as Lee ordered assaults he shouldn't have ordered. Virtually every commander on both sides ordered frontal assaults they shouldn't have ordered. Sherman did it at Kennesaw Mountain. Longstreet did it at Knoxville. I mean, that's, there are only so many options. You don't always get to do what you would ideally like to do on a battlefield. And almost everybody resorted to frontal assaults at one time or another, uh, including Lee very late in the war at Fort Stedman, where he launched an assault that's as big as the Pickett-Pettigrew assault. The, the attacks on Fort Stedman involve almost exactly as many men as the Pickett-Pettigrew assault. Nobody's ever heard of it. Uh, and, and there are 5,000 casualties in the attack at Fort Stedman, and that's at the end of March 1865. Uh, everybody understands entrenchments make a difference. You still have attacks against entrenchments again and again. You have them in the Atlantic campaign. You have them. It, it happens almost everywhere, almost everywhere. How important was the absentee ballot in the federal election of 1864? That's a nice softball down the middle. There is a great, there's a great, a great new book out on soldiers and the election of 1864. I don't think I wrote the title of it down. I meant to, but then I forget a lot of things these days. Let me make sure I didn't. I didn't. The, the, the author's named Jonathan White. And he, the book is out from LSU, and it's just out from LSU. So Google Jonathan White, LSU, Union Soldiers Election of 1864. Uh, the way it worked in the United States is states decided whether soldiers could vote in the field or not, or whether they had to go home to vote in their precincts. So some states allowed you to vote in the field and others didn't. We know that for the votes that we can definitely identify as soldier votes, almost 80% of them went for Lincoln. And historians for a long time have assumed that that meant certain things. This new book is a wonderful, it's by far the most careful analysis of the soldier vote in 1864. And what it indicates absolutely without question is that what the soldier vote showed, and a lot of it was suppressed, a lot of the Democratic vote was suppressed uh, in the campaign. But what it shows is that the overwhelming desire of the soldiers, whether Democrats or Republicans, was to see the war through to the end. Same attitude that I think is present among the army of Northern Virginia soldiers. They're going to push through to the end and that they believed a vote for Lincoln would have that happen and a vote for McClellan might not have that happen. It didn't mean they hated McClellan. It didn't mean they, they agreed with a lot of Lincoln's policies, but it meant that they, by God, wanted to finish what they had started and the best way to ensure that was to vote for Lincoln because the Democratic platform, unlike the Democratic candidate, the candidate in the platform, McClellan and his platform were at odds with one another in 1864. McClellan said, win the war. The platform said, stop fighting and then see what happens. Soldiers didn't trust the Democrats if they were elected to win the war. And so they—that that is how their vote went. What this book does is unequivocally show that union sentiment is the key to it, a belief in union, that's the issue. And also shows that there was a tremendous amount of, of tampering with the soldier vote, uh, t- manipulating who got to vote, who didn't get to vote, who it, it was... Uh, it's a great book. I recommend it to you. Uh, he teaches at Christopher Newport, the, the author of this book. It's a great book. Oh.
3: Uh, I have a question about... Uh, the generalship of the Confederacy, uh, when you're starting to move into this last overland period, uh, the the Confederates had lost Stonewall Jackson. uh, They had many quality generals wounded at Gettysburg and some of the smaller skirmishes that went on. Mm -hmm. Going forward between that, did that leadership ability, do you think, caused more problems or slowdown in what would have happened with Brant or not really as much as...
2: It it, it caused huge problems. The the attrition among leaders caused huge problems on both sides. Lee lost a third of his entire high command during the Gettysburg campaign. He lost a third of his entire high command during the Overland campaign again. And in the very first stages of it, his his four top subordinates going into the Overland campaign are Jeb Stewart, James Longstreet, A.P. Hill, and Richard Ewell. Jeb Stewart's dead on May the 12th. James Longstreet hideously wounded on May the 6th along the Plank Road. Richard Ewell collapsed in Lee's view, utterly unreliable. Lee pushed him out of the Army at the end of May. And A.P. Hill is sick, oh he's not sick, oh he's sick, oh he's not sick. You never know what A.P. Hill is going to be doing. 100% of the four key subordinates in the Army in Northern Virginia were problematical for Lee as you move through the campaign. Uh, the same thing's happening with Grant. Uh, he, Sedgwick is dead. Uh, <coughs> Governor Warren proved to be utterly unreliable. From Grant, you want him to be on the defense, he be attacks. You want him to attack, he's on the defensive. Whatever you want Governor Warren to do, he does the opposite. He's a problem. Winfield Scott Hancock broke down uh, once the armies got to Petersburg. So there are there are real problems of command on both sides. Attrition is a terrible. It's a it's a significant theme. Through the history of the Army in Northern Virginia, how do you find men to replace the ones who are being disabled or who are being found wanting at whatever level they're exercising commands? Huge story, huge story in these campaigns. And you you have Lee on the North Anna When he finally has Grant at a tremendous disadvantage, with Grant having put his army in pieces on different sides of the river where it loops there, very vulnerable. Lee is confined to his cot. The only time in the war we're sure his health put him out of command. He doesn't trust anybody to manage attacks against Grant. So the opportunity passes. If Longstreet had been there, if Jackson had been there, even later if Jubal Early had been there, I think Lee would have had him do it. But in the midst, there at the end of May, he doesn't trust anybody. And so that's, that is a measure of how the high command had fractured, unraveled, you picked your word, by that stage of the campaign. Over there against the, wall. At the battle at um, Five Forks, when that
3: battle was lost, did that cut generally off of all supplies?
2: The question is about five Forks. Five Forks seals the doom of the Army in Northern Virginia because Philip Sheridan got all the way around the far right flank of the Army in Northern Virginia, got out on the South Side Railroad end of things out there. When when that part of the line collapses when Pickett uh, isn't able to hang on on that end of the line, that's it. And Lee sent word here to Richmond very shortly after that, as you know, to Jefferson Davis that we, we can't, we're gonna have to abandon Petersburg and Richmond. They can't be defended anymore. That's April 1st. And a
1: final oh. uh, would you comment, please, on the relationship of Grant and George Meade?
2: Yes, Grant and Meade, poor, poor George Meade. Meade is in a really tough position. He's commander of the Army of the Potomac from. June 28, 1863, all the way to the end of the war. Uh, Grant never takes over command, but because he travels with the army in the public mind, it becomes his army. And Meade's letters are very interesting, back to his wife in that regard. He feels, he knows he's in an impossible position. The credit will go to Grant. Blame might come to him. I think that Grant... Thought that Meade had some talent, although he sort of goes up and down in terms of how much confidence he has in Meade. But he doesn't—he doesn't rely. I mean, it's Grant. Grant is in charge uh, as the campaign unfolds. It isn't Meade, so Meade is kind of an intermediary who is passing along the the instructions to the army, which is his army in that sense. But it's really Grant's army in the larger sense, and and it's—I think it's very reflective of Meade's end of the war. It wasn't deliberate on Grant's part that Meade doesn't even get to be present in Wilmer McLean's parlor on April the 9th. All these other guys are there. A lot of Grant's guys are there. EOC Ord is there and Sheridan's there. But George Meade is not there. He's over at the other end of the army. He's not even present at the last moment. Of this campaign. It's really, I think it's, and he wasn't bitter about that. I mean, Meade is, there's a lot admirable about Meade, but on the other hand, Meade isn't going to win the war for you. I don't think there's any question about that either. We need a really good biography of Meade. It's been a long time, and someone should, he's got great letters in Philadelphia. The, The letters are really good. Someone should write a big biography of George Gordon Meade. Thank you.